Chapter 9 of A History of California, the Spanish Period. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 Drake and New Albion. Californians have long known of and been interested in the visit to their shores in 1579 of the world famous navigator Drake, afterwards Sir Francis Drake. Neither they nor others, however, have been wont to realize the full significance of this event from the English standpoint on the one hand, or the Spanish on the other. In truth, here was the first New England in North America, not alone in the name Nova or New Albion, which Drake applied, but also in the deliberate intent then and thereafter to create a great English empire in the Americas around the nucleus of Drake's California discoveries. The plan failed to mature, but the achievements of Drake, and later of his fellow countryman Thomas Cavendish, stimulated the Spaniards to great efforts which materially furthered their program of an advance up the Pacific coast and into the Californias. The story finds a logical place in the great world events of the 16th century, which can only be alluded to briefly here. Spain and England, even when not at war, were bitterly hostile to each other during most of that century, and especially so in the reign of Queen Elizabeth of England, 1558-1603. Spain was the great power of Europe and the world, the uncompromising champion of Catholicism, in an age of violent religious differences, and the sole occupant of the treasure house of the Americas. England, though rising to a position of greatness, was scarcely to be considered as equal in strength to Spain, it was Protestant and anti-Catholic, and was particularly displeased with Spain's pretensions not only to the sovereignty, but also to the exclusive trade of the New World. Thus, English mariners, with the secret or even the open backing of the royal authorities, made voyages to the Americas to smuggle goods into Spanish colonies or capture Spanish ships and plunder their towns. There was what amounted to a perpetual warfare, though in Europe the two peoples were for the first thirty years of Elizabeth's reign outwardly at peace. Greatest of the earlier sailors of this period was John Hawkins, under whom Drake received his training. In 1568, the fleet of John Hawkins came to grief in the port of Veracruz when it was attacked by the Spaniards in contravention of what the survivors claimed was their plighted word. On this occasion, Drake indeed escaped capture, but lost some 7,000 ducats, all that he possessed, which he had embarked in Hawkins' venture. Filled with hate for the enemy, whom he regarded as having treacherously deprived him of his fortune, Drake swore an oath to be revenged. Never was an oath more faithfully and completely kept. During the remainder of his life he collected the debt many times over, and was a veritable scourge of Spain. In 1573 he made an inland journey nearly across the Isthmus of Panama, with a view to capturing the Spanish treasure coming that way from Peru. Reaching the Continental Divide, he climbed a tree and saw before him, for the first time, the waters of the Pacific. As he told his old comrade, John Oxenham, he besought Almighty God of his goodness to give him life and leave to sail once in an English ship in that sea. 
This wish developed into the proportions of a vow, for from that time forward Drake was resolved to find a way to accomplish his desire. Five years later the chance came. Meanwhile, in 1575, Oxenham had crossed Panama and built a pinnace which sailed in the Pacific, thus depriving Drake of the glory of being the first Englishman to navigate those seas. But Oxenham's party was captured by the Spaniards. It was in the years 1577 to 1580 that Drake made his famous voyage around the world, stopping in California in 1579 on the way. One of the moot points about this voyage has been the question whether Drake had the formal authorization of a sovereign for the undertaking or whether he was to be considered a pirate. No instructions of the royal government are extant, but there is such an overwhelming array of circumstantial evidence that there can no longer be a reasonable doubt but that he went forth in the royal service. Though Spain and England were not formally at war, the English queen had many scores against Spain, which she was only too ready to pay off, if opportunity should offer. To mention but a single thing, there were the constant plots against her life, and the queen well knew that Philip II of Spain was cognizant of them, if not indeed the directing hand. She therefore resolved to pay Spain back in her own coin by dealing a series of underhanded blows whereby she could get satisfaction and, at the same time, profit for the crown. The Earl of Essex recommended Drake to her as a man well fitted to serve her against Spain, and Drake was granted an interview with the Queen. Elizabeth seemed desirous of some sort of descent upon the Spanish peninsula itself, but Drake, quote, told Her Majesty of the small good that was to be done in Spain, but the only way was to annoy him by his Indies, unquote. It would seem that Drake then proposed that he should make a voyage into the Pacific to plunder and destroy Spanish ships and cities there, thus to annoy the King of Spain, and to take possession for his queen of all lands not occupied already by a Christian prince. Then, if possible, he was to return to England by way of the strait through North America, if he could find it, or otherwise by sailing around the world. The evidence for this is not direct, but Drake often stated that he had sailed by the Queen's commission. According to the testimony of a Portuguese pilot whom he took prisoner and later released, quote, he told all those whom he captured that he came in the service of his sovereign the Queen, whose instructions he carried and obeyed, and that he had come more for another purpose than that of taking ships, End quote. Furthermore, his ship was fitted out in a way to make an impression beyond anything that was required of an ordinary buccaneering adventure. For, quote, neither did he omit to make provision also for ornament or delight, carrying to this purpose with him expert musicians, rich furniture, all the vessels for his table, yea, many belonging even to the cookroom being of pure silver, and divers shows of all sorts of curious workmanship whereby the civility and magnificence of his native country might, amongst the nations whithersoever he should come, be the more admired. Elizabeth herself seems to have given him some of the dainties and perfumed waters with which he was supplied. In keeping with all this magnificence, 
Drake had gorgeous uniforms, observed almost royal state on his ship, and was attended by a number of gentlemen of the best families in England. These matters have a bearing on the plans that occasioned and also grew out of Drake's visit to California. In November 1577, Drake left England at the head of a fleet of five ships. The largest was the Pelican, a vessel of only a hundred tons, subsequently renamed the Golden Hind when Drake reached the Pacific. In all five ships, there was a total of 164 men. Of the early hardships he encountered, and of his experiences in South and Central America, there is little need here to tell. He entered the Pacific in September 1578. Sailing northward, with only his flagship left to him, he attacked Spanish towns and ships until he had a treasure that filled the vessel to its capacity. Proceeding to New Spain, he stopped at Huatulco in Oaxaca. Here he put ashore the last of the prisoners he had taken, except for three Negroes, and procured supplies. He had sufficiently worried King Philip, but the principal business of the voyage remained to perform. He wished now to find suitable lands for British colonies and the way of escape from the Spaniards through the strait, and the fewer witnesses he had with him, the better. Leaving Huatulco on April 16, 1579, Drake went well out to sea and headed toward the unknown waters of the north. There is a dispute as to the farthest north Drake reached, a dispute which was of international significance down to the Oregon Treaty of 1846 between Great Britain and the United States. The British claim was based largely on their contention that Drake had discovered the coast above 42 degrees, the present northern boundary of California, to 48 degrees. The international dispute having long since been settled, it has been possible to investigate the matter objectively, and the consensus of opinion has been in favor of 42 degrees. George Davidson, who knew the Pacific coast as well as any man that ever lived, held that Drake stopped between 42 and 43 degrees at Chetco Cove in 42 degrees 3 minutes, just over the California line in present-day Oregon. He was, therefore, the probable discoverer of that state, for it is unlikely that Ferrello saw the coast so far north. It is true that the claim for the higher latitude was based on accounts of those who made the voyage, together with their comments on the extraordinary cold they experienced and the snow they saw on the mountains. But these very accounts are inconsistent in themselves, and their remarks about the cold were applied equally to what all recognize as the California coast and to the supposedly more northern climates. Thus, John Drake, a cousin of the commander, who was on the Golden Hind, had this to say in 1854 when questioned by Spanish officials of the Rio de la Plata. Quote, they sailed out at sea until they reached 48 degrees north. Captain Francis gave the land that is situated in 48 degrees the name of New England. They were there a month and a half, taking in water and wood and repairing their ship. End quote. In 1587, the same John Drake made the following declaration before the Inquisition of Lima. Quote, then they left Huatulco and sailed until they reached 44 degrees, when the wind changed and he, Drake, the commander, went to the Californias, 
where he discovered land in 48 degrees. There he landed and built huts and remained for a month and a half. Another account, presumably by a sailor on the voyage, made 48 degrees the farthest north and spoke of landing in 44 degrees. The chaplain of the Golden Hind, Francis Fletcher, whose narrative is the principal account of the voyage that has survived, said that they were in 42 degrees on June 3rd. Two days later, the contrary winds forced them to shore, where they cast anchor in a bad bay, which Davidson identifies as Chetco Cove. This was their farthest north, and according to Fletcher, they were in 48 degrees. Thus, in two days, against contrary winds and the Japan current, they must have sailed over 400 miles. If that rate had been maintained since leaving Huatulco, they would have gone 10,000 miles. It would seem, therefore, that the latitudes given were all too high. Richard Hacklut, the immortal collector of all narratives on voyages and a contemporary of Drake, gave 42 degrees as the northerly limit, changing in the later date to 43 degrees. Davidson's views, already referred to, may be accepted for the present as most likely to have represented the truth. Footnote. The most extravagant view is that taken recently by Mrs. Nuttall. According to her, quote, Drake ventured so far north that even he dared go no further, and was forced to turn back on account of the intense cold and ice he encountered, earning, however, the credit, accorded to him by contemporary poets, notably by the Spaniard Lope de Vega, of having sighted the North as well as the South Pole. In the absence of Mrs. Nuttall's proofs, it is impossible as yet to accept her conclusions. End of footnote. Incidentally, it was to Drake's interest to state the latitude as high as he could, not only for the glory that would accrue to him as the discoverer, but also, and perhaps more especially, to excuse his failure to continue the search for the strait. According to the testimony of the Portuguese pilot whom he put ashore at Huatulco, Drake had told him that he was under orders to go as far north as 66 degrees before abandoning the attempt to discover the strait. Chaplain Fletcher, whom Drake once described as ye falsest knave that liveth, seems to have justified his commander's reflections on his veracity in his comments about the cold off the California coast. According to Fletcher, quote, the very ropes of our ship were stiff, and the rain which fell was an unnatural, congealed, and frozen substance. Though seamen lack not good stomachs, yet it seemed a question to many amongst us whether their hands should feed their mouths or rather keep themselves within their coverts from the pinching cold which did benumb them. Our meat, as soon as it was removed from the fire, would presently in a manner be frozen up. Every hill, whereof we saw many, but none very high, though it were in June, and the sun in its nearest approach unto them, being covered with snow." Referring to their disagreeable position in the Bad Bay, Chetko Cove, Fletcher says, quote, We were not without some danger by reason of the many extreme gusts and flaws that beat upon us, which, if they ceased and were still at any time, immediately upon their intermission there followed 
most vile, thick, and stinking fogs, end quote. One might indeed have wondered if they had not touched the Arctic zone, were it not that the chaplain used the same extreme language in describing the cold at Drake's landing place in 38 degrees, clearly within Alta California. Suffice to say that the natives, the birds, and the very land itself shivered with the cold, and there is more about thick mists and most stinking fogs and the nipping cold of a California in June and July. It is, of course, clear to Californians how these statements came to be made. The fogs of the summer along the northern coast do indeed seem cold to one who is not acclimated. Many a man from the east of the United States will shiver through his first summer, but rarely afterward. It may well have seemed worse to Drake and his men, who had for a long time been in the tropics. John Drake says nothing of the cold and gives no hint that they had reached a far northern clime. At any rate, Drake turned south soon after he first sighted land, being forced back by the contrary winds, according to Fletcher. Perhaps the principal reason for his return, or at least for his failure to resume the northward voyage, was that the coast ran so continuously to the northwest that he and his men began to believe that North America was joined to Asia or very near it, and therefore there was scant probability of a strait. So the ship went south along the California coast, and, as Fletcher puts it, quote, in 38 degrees 31 minutes we fell within a convenient and fit harbor, and on June 17th came to anchor therein, where we continued till the 23rd day of July following, end quote. It is now generally agreed that this was Drake's Bay, but for a long time, many held that the stop was made in San Francisco Bay a little further south, while others contended in favor of Bodega Bay a few miles to the north. The Spaniards always said that Drake stopped in the Bay of San Francisco, but this was the only possible argument for that port, as the description of Drake's stopping place in no way tallied with that of San Francisco Bay. When it developed that the Bay of San Francisco was for nearly two centuries the Spanish name for Drake's Bay, while the bay now so-called was unknown to them, the argument for San Francisco Bay was dropped. Bodega Bay is not a convenient and fit harbor, for it is open to the westerly winds, and no ship like Drake's could have stayed there 36 days. Drake's Bay is small, but it might have been deemed a good port, and besides, it has the white banks and cliffs which lie toward the sea, referred to in the description given by Fletcher. On the day following their arrival, they were harangued three times by an Indian in a canoe, who made a great show of reverence and submission. The Indians, in general, seemed to be in a state of wonderment about the ship, which was the first, so far as is known, that had ever stopped there, though Ferrello's expedition, and, no doubt, a number of the galleons, had in previous years passed within sight of the shore. Three days later, Drake moved his ship farther in, that he might repair a leak, and he landed his men, but took the precaution of making a rough fort for their protection, and set up tents to sleep in. The Indians, however, were very submissive, and showed plainly that they looked upon Drake and his men as gods, despite the attempts of the latter to persuade them that they were not. 
the englishmen on their part were interested in the customs of the indians their wigwam homes their dress or lack of it and the rude presents that they brought during two days the indians stayed away but then they came with a great concourse from neighboring towns and with gifts or as they seemed to drake's men sacrifices upon this persuasion that we were gods Quote, when they came to the top of the hill at the bottom whereof we had built our fort they made a stand where one appointed as their chief speaker wearied both us as hearers and himself too with a long and tedious oration delivered with strange and violent gestures his voice being extended to the uttermost strength of nature and his words following so thick one on the neck of another that he could hardly fetch his breath again as soon as he had concluded all the rest with a reverend bowing of their bodies and a dreaming matter and long producing of the same cried oh thereby giving their consents that all was very true which he had spoken and that they had uttered their mind by his mouth unto us which done the men laying down their bows upon the hill and leaving their women and children behind them came down with their presence in such sort as if they had appeared before a god indeed thinking themselves happy that they might have access unto our general but much more happy when they saw that he would receive at their hands those things which they so willingly had presented and no doubt they thought themselves nearest unto god when they sat or stood next to him in the meantime the women as if they had been desperate used unnatural violence against themselves crying and shrieking piteously tearing their flesh with their nails from their cheeks in a monstrous manner the blood streaming down along their breasts besides despoiling the upper parts of their bodies of those single coverings they formerly had and holding their hands above their heads that they might not rescue their breasts from harm they would with fury cast themselves upon the ground never respecting whether it were clean or soft but dash themselves in this manner on hard stones knobby hillocks stalks of wood and prickling bushes or whatever else lay in their way iterating the same course again and again yea women great with child some nine or ten times each and others holding out till fifteen or sixteen times till their strengths failed them they exercised this cruelty against themselves a thing more grievous for us to see or suffer could we have helped it than trouble to them as it seemed to do it this bloody sacrifice against our wills being thus performed our general with his company in the presence of those strangers fell to prayers and by signs and lifting up our eyes and hands to heaven signified unto them that the god whom we did serve and whom they ought to worship was above beseeching god if it were his good pleasure to open by some means their blinded eyes that they might in due time be called to the knowledge of him the true and ever-living god and of jesus christ whom he had sent the salutation of the gentiles in the time of which prayers singing of songs and the reading of certain chapters of the bible they sat very attentively and observing the end at every pause with one voice still cried oh greatly rejoicing in our exercises yea they took such pleasure in our singing of psalms 
that whenever they resorted to us, their first request was commonly this, and ah, by which they entreated that we should sing. Our general, having now bestowed upon them divers things at their departure, they restored them all again, none carrying with him anything of whatsoever he had received, thinking themselves sufficiently enriched and happy that they had found so free access to see us. End quote. Three days later, the heel, or as Drake's men understood it, the king of all that country, came to visit them. On this occasion, there were a number of long, unintelligible speeches and religious songs and dances by the Indians, after which, as Fletcher asserts, they offered Drake the scepter and the crown, even the heel joining in, quote, making signs that they would resign unto him their right and title in the whole land, and become his vassals in themselves and their posterities. Wherefore, in the name and to the use of her most excellent majesty, he took the scepter, crown, and dignity of the said country unto his hand. Unquote. The ceremony was described at great length, and was relied upon by the English government nearly three centuries later in part substantiation of its claim to the northwest coast. It is now generally held that the Indians, who had not the faintest conception of the meaning of sovereignty, were going through the ceremony of the peace pipe, admitting Drake to membership in the tribe. After this was over, quote, the common sort, both of men and women, leaving the king and his guard about him with our general, dispersed themselves among our people, taking a diligent view or survey of every man and finding such as pleased their fancies which commonly were the youngest of us, they presently, enclosing them about, offered their sacrifices unto them, crying out with lamentable shrieks and moans, weeping and scratching and tearing their very flesh off their faces with their nails. Neither were it the women alone which did this, but even old men, roaring and crying out, were as violent as the women were." In the course of the long stay at this port, Drake and some of his company made an inland journey, but whether for several days or only for a few hours, the record does not say. They found it to be, quote, far different from the shore, a goodly country and fruitful soil, stored with many blessings fit for the use of man, unquote. Among other things, they saw very large and fat deer by thousands and a multitude of strange kind of conies. They seem not to have set eyes upon San Francisco Bay, for there is no reference to such a body of water in the records of their sojourn. Drake called the country Nova Albion, induced to this course by the white banks and cliffs which lie toward the sea, but more particularly it may be imagined, quote, that it might have some affinity, even in name also, with our own country, England, which was sometimes so called, quote. Drake also took good care to set up a monument claiming title to that kingdom for Queen Elizabeth and her successors. At length, the time for departure was at hand, and when the Indians perceived that the Englishmen were going, they were filled with grief and renewed their sacrifices. They made signs indicating that they hoped to be remembered and wished that the Englishmen would return some day. As the Golden Hind went out of the port, July 23, 1579, 
they lighted beacon fires on the hills the next day drake was at the falerone islands unaware how near he was to that great port of the west here is the narrative of that day Quote, not far without this harbor drake's bay did lie certain islands we called them the islands of st james having on them plentiful and a great store of seals and birds with one of which we fell july twenty fourth whereon we found such provision as might competently serve our turn for a while we departed again the next day following viz july twenty fifth drake's further adventures may be rapidly passed over he steered across the pacific and for sixty-eight days was out of sight of the land at length he reached the philippines and the moluccas and then sailed on around the cape of good hope to england on one occasion an event happened which is at once illustrative of drake's luck and of the perils of the sea while under full sail in an open sea at night the golden hind ran aground and stuck fast yet all around when soundings were taken they could not find bottom when day came it proved that the ship had run upon a shelving bit of rock possibly the peak of a prehistoric mountain they had come upon it at high tide and now that the tide had fallen their chance of getting off seemed worse than ever the ship fell over on its side and then when death was all but upon them the keel was loosed and the vessel rolled off into deep water on september twenty sixth fifteen eighty with one ship out of the five that he had started with and about fifty men out of an original one hundred sixty four drake sailed into plymouth england he had taken two years and nearly ten months for the voyage in the course of which he had circumnavigated the globe the golden hind was the second ship which had achieved this distinction and drake was the first individual who had made the entire voyage as commander of his ship these then are the facts concerning drake's visit to california but the story does not end here as has already been intimated drake and the queen seemed definitely to have planned the establishment of a colonial empire in the americas in rivalry to that of spain drake believed that in new albion he had found a satisfactory nucleus for the attempt thinking though of course mistakenly that quote, the spaniards never had any dealing or so much as set a foot in this country the utmost of their discoveries reaching only to many degrees southward of this place his treatment of the indians too seems to have been founded on a deliberate intention of attracting them to english rule and the protestant faith in contrast to the virtual enslavement which the spaniards and portuguese had subjected the natives drake dreamed of an english new spain or peru in california and surely the equivalent was there holding that quote, there is no part of the earth here to be taken up wherein there is not some special likelihood of gold or silver queen elizabeth herself joined him in this speculation and a project was drawn up in exact imitation of the practices of spain this document which was headed quote, a project of a corporation of such as shall venture into such dominions and countries situate beyond the equinoctial line unquote, merits insertion here it reads as follows quote, imprimis that it may please her majesty to grant like privileges 
as have been granted by herself and her progenitors unto her subjects trading into the dominions of the emperor of russia item that in consideration of the late notable discovery made by francis drake of such dominions as are situated beyond the said equinoctial line it may please her majesty that he may during his natural life supply the place of the governor of the said company and in consideration of his great travail and hazard of his person in the said discovery to have during his said life a tenth part of the profits of such commodities as shall be brought into this realm from the parts above remembered item that there shall be reserved unto her majesty a fifth part of the profit of such mines of gold and silver as shall be found in these countries that are hereafter to be discovered and are not lawfully possessed by any other christian prince item that it may please her majesty to erect a house of contrates with such orders as were granted by the king of spain thus drake was to be the governor of the new company or at least to appoint that officer and was to receive a large share of the profits while elizabeth was to get the royal fifth and to establish an english casa de contraccion or house of trade the seat of the company's activities was referred to only as beyond the equinoctial line but there can be no doubt from other evidence that california was to be the head and center of the plan this becomes more clear in light of a sixteenth-century French map of Drake's voyage, inscribed as seen and corrected by Drake himself. In this map, the crown and arms of the Queen of England were placed on the islands south of the Strait of Magellan and on California. The name Nova Albio appears, but it runs nearly halfway across the continent. Most significant of all is a boundary line beginning at the head of the Gulf of California and running east through what is now the United States to a point in the Gulf of Mexico where the peninsula of Florida breaks off to the south. Below this line is the caption Nova Hispani or New Spain, a small section on the South Atlantic coast beginning in northeastern Florida is marked off as Nova France or New France in deference to the French Huguenot colonies of the middle and later 16th century. All the rest, including the narrow wedge of the Florida Peninsula between New France and New Spain, was apparently to be part of Drake's New England, or Albion, proceeding not out of Plymouth Rock or Boston Harbor, but from the faraway western port at Drake's Bay. The project was something more than a wild dream, According to the testimony of one of Drake's prisoners, captured by him while off the northwestern coast of South America and released the next day, the English navigator had said, quote, that if God spared his life, he would return here from his country within two years with six or seven galleons, Steps were taken immediately after Drake's return to England to make good this assertion. In January 1581, the Spanish ambassador to England wrote that Queen Elizabeth had agreed that Drake was to start with ten ships for the Moluccas, he understood, and that six more were to go to Brazil and join Drake later in the Pacific. Political complications in Europe, however, especially the danger of a conflict with Spain, caused the plan to be abandoned. 
another expedition was organized, presumably to go to the Moluccas, but it was fitted out with the elements necessary to the founding of a colony, and was ordered to find a northern route to New Albion. The sequel, as told by Mrs. Nuttall, was as follows. Quote, by some intrigue, the command was finally given to Edward Fenton, whom Drake and his men suspected of having dealings with the Spanish ambassador. It certainly came to pass that orders were disregarded. The fleet was taken to the coast of Brazil, where it was met and attacked by Spanish ships. Suspecting treachery, John Drake and a small party separated themselves from the expedition, which was then abandoned. Thus, the attempt to colonize New Albion and establish trade relations with the East Indies was frustrated. End quote. Drake's first visit to California was, therefore, his last, and it was two centuries more before his countrymen again appeared off that coast. His achievement, however, was not without result, though Spain originally and the United States ultimately were to profit by it instead of England. As will be pointed out in the next chapter, he stimulated the Spaniards to efforts which were later to bear fruit in the occupation of the Californias precisely against such a peril as Drake's plan represented. It is therefore fitting, not only in honor of the English navigator's great feat in itself, but also in testimony of the importance of his work as affecting the future of California, that a stone cross should have been raised to his memory on one of the hills of San Francisco, overlooking the Golden Gate and San Francisco Bay. Footnote. The literature on Drake's voyage in the Pacific is of vast proportions, but though much contemporary material has been discovered, many of the facts concerning this celebrated expedition are still veiled in mystery. This is due mainly to the disappearance of Drake's own journal and the necessity for reliance upon inconclusive evidences. Particularly noteworthy among the works employed in preparing this chapter are the following. 1. Drake, Sir Francis. The world encompassed by Sir Francis Drake, collated with an unpublished manuscript of Francis Fletcher, chaplain of the expedition. London, 1854. Original edition, London, 1628, in Aklute Society, Works, First Series, Volume 16. The author was a nephew of the Admiral. The remarks cited to Fletcher in this chapter are from this volume. 2. New Light on Drake, a collection of documents relating to his voyage of circumnavigation, 1577 to 1580. Translated and edited by Mrs. Zelia Nuttall. London, 1914, in Hacklute Society Works, Second Series, Volume 34. End of footnote. End of chapter 9.